Hello and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam Etris and I'm part of the Ridge team here in Morgantown. As Christ followers, we can often wonder, what will heaven be like? Will we be busy or bored? Will we know our loved ones? Listen as Pastor Tim brings a talk from the series Homecoming, where we are exploring what the Bible has to say about heaven. We hope that this talk will encourage and inspire you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Good morning. Socrates, the Greek philosopher who was born about 470 BC, is the one who's attributed as saying this statement, or the one that likely made this statement, the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. The more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. It's called the Socratic Paradox. And over the years, I've heard different versions of this, almost always made by people that were quite smart, intelligent people like Aristotle and Einstein. They've also made similar statements as this, sometimes varying just a tiny bit. And even in the Bible, there's an example of a statement like this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2, where Paul said, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not know it as he ought to know it. If you think you know something, you really don't know as you should know it. He wasn't saying, of course, that you can't know things. There are things that we can know. But what he was saying is what we know compared to what we don't know is, I mean, we, we know just a thimble amount of knowledge compared to all the knowledge that is out there. In addition to that, one of the versions of this statement is along the lines of the more you learn, the more you learn you don't know. You know, the more learned you'd become, you'd think that you would, you know, think, well, now I know a lot. But the truth is, the more learned we become, the more we do realize we don't know anything. I want to illustrate it. This isn't my illustration. I'm not even sure who came up with it. But if we look at this circle here, we'd say, well, the things, whatever we know uh, fits in there. Everything you've ever thought, whatever, anything you could know, it fits in there. Everything outside of this going for eternity, you don't know. We just don't know. We don't even know what we don't know. But... When we gain some new insight or knowledge, and some have illustrated it like a little circle there, or some have just enlarged the entire circle, what happens is you bump into the knowledge you didn't have before, and suddenly you're raising a bunch of new questions. You know, you think when before people knew about computers or certain electronic things, they discovered something, and then suddenly it raised a whole host of new questions. Well, yeah, what about this? What about this? What about that? Questions you would have never thought to ask if you were not exposed to some new level of learning. So why am I talking about this? Because it's not a science class, exactly. We're continuing our series called Homecoming, and I want to acknowledge, acknowledge up front that there's more we don't know than that we do know. There's so many questions, even as I've been wrestling with this entire subject, this entire series, I've been, I've been asking myself a variety of questions and I realize I don't, know, I don't know so many of the answers here. And I think part of the reason for that is that I don't think God wanted us to know too much because it would freak us out. I mean, what if we really knew certain things? I don't know how we would even handle that. What I do want us to understand here today and what I hope, I hope we walk away with is this, that we need to look to heaven to learn about heaven. Now I'm using the first word, heaven here is a euphemism for God. If you were here last week, I talked about how, you, when you say for heaven's sake, you mean for God's sake. 
we need to get our theology on this subject from the pages of the Bible. Because there are a lot of ideas out there in our culture that are just not accurate, and that's where I'm gonna be spending our time this morning. I'm gonna be raising 10 questions and also addressing some misconceptions that, that people have. But I want to encourage us to go to, to the Bible for our theology, and then also we need to handle, even when we go to the Bible, we need to handle it well. I was talking with one of the other pastors this past week about this series and the message and everything, and he said he had a Sunday school teacher that took a verse that I used last week from 1 John and came up with quite a unique interpretation of the verse. In 1 John we read, when we see Jesus, we will become like him because we'll see him as he is. So I talked about that verse last week. When Jesus comes back, we join him in the, in the clouds, we're gonna be changed and we're gonna see him as we, he is and we're gonna become like him. This Sunday school teacher interpreted that to mean that since Jesus was 33 years old when he died, that we're all gonna be 33 and we're all gonna be men. Now, you don't need to even know the Bible to know that's not a very good interpretation of that passage. Obviously, Jesus wasn't talking about the, Jesus' age or anything like that. He was talking about this glorified body that we're all gonna get that's gonna resemble his. But there are a lot of misunderstandings people have. So I wanna raise 10 questions, and I wanna say at the outset here, too, that some of the answers might bother some of you. Because we have been so influenced by our culture to think certain things are true. And I would hope that our heart would be to say, you know, I want to, I want to rest on the truth, not, not what the culture says. I want to cling to what the Bible says is true, going back to my takeaway here today. And I think we should all have a certain humility to say we just don't know a lot of things. And you'll hear some of that this morning. But let's jump into the questions. So 10 questions here. The first one is this, where is heaven? In other words, where is it located? Now, last week I talked about the fact that heaven was a real place. I think it's a physical place, but it's also a spiritual place. But where is it? The simple answer is it is up. It's up there somewhere. That's the thing we know for sure. Jesus was talking with a religious leader in John chapter 3, and he said these words, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He was acknowledging that's where he came from, and he's going to be returning one day, but he talks about an ascent and a descent, and we know it's up there somewhere. Fast forward to the day that Jesus rose again from the dead. Mary, Martha, some of the women came to anoint Jesus' body at the tomb, and and they found it was empty. Angels said he had risen from the dead. And then suddenly Jesus appeared behind Mary and called her name, Mary. She turned around and she said, teacher. And then apparently she hugged him. And Jesus said this to her in John 20, 17. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And then 40 days later, that's exactly what happened. 500 people with Jesus on a mountain. He gave them his marching orders. And then we read in Acts 1.9, after he said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of sight, their sight. And so it's up, it's in, in the clouds, that's where heaven is. Now we don't know exactly where, I would say presumably it's beyond the known universe. I would say presumably even our strongest telescope will never quite catch up with where heaven is. But 
we know it is, for at least the time being, it is up. Second question, what is heaven like? Now, there are a lot of verses that describe heaven. It's important to understand that some of the verses we read about in the book of Revelation are symbolic, and some of the questions are to be taken literally, and it's not always clear which is which. You know, John was trying to describe certain things he was seeing. And so in Revelation chapter four and verse one, John is writing, and he said, after this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. Well, are there doors in heaven? There may be, there may not be. Of course, he's describing the fact that God was granting him access into this heavenly place. That's, that's the heart of what's being said. And then as soon as John got there, he, he, he described a bunch of things he saw. He saw a throne where God was seated, He saw 24 additional thrones around the throne of God. And seated on those thrones, he said, were these 24 elders. They were dressed in in white clothes and they were wearing golden crowns. Now, did, did he really see that or is this symbolic? I mean, he really saw it, but was it real or was it symbolic? We've come to understand or at least a lot of biblical commentators have come to understand that this is a reflection of the fact that the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament represented by the 12 apostles, 24 thrones, that one day we're gonna rule with Christ. And I think that's very clear. In addition, he saw flashes of lightning. He heard thunder representing the holiness of God. He said there was this sea of glass that, that came up to the throne of God. It was beautiful like crystal. He was describing some of what he was seeing, and I believe that when people die and go to heaven, that they see these things. There were also angels, a host of angels, singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and I think worship is constantly going on in heaven. Although, I'll say up front here that we we won't be worshiping God constantly in heaven like in an endless church service. But we'll get to that one in just a minute. The writer of Hebrews adds an interesting dimension to this story. He talks also about heaven, and he contrasts what our experience will be when we come into the presence of God versus the experience that the people of Israel had in the Old Testament. You remember when they met God in the Old Testament, that they stood around Mount Sinai, and God came down on the mountain like with a fire. It's like the top half of the mountain was on fire, and smoke was billowing up like in a furnace. And then God spoke, and it sounded like thunder, and trumpets were playing, and they were terrified. And they said to Moses, please, don't let us hear anymore, because we can't, I mean, they just couldn't stand it. That was the Old Testament, but... We're looking forward to a day when we are able to stand in the presence of our God in an entirely different spirit than that. And the writer of Hebrews in 12.22 put it this way, you have come to Mount Zion. Zion, by the way, is another name for Jerusalem. You have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So there's a city in heaven to myriads of angels in festive gathering. He's making the point that, that our, it's gonna be like a party up there. It was hard for the people of Israel when they first met God and they needed to understand his holiness, but one day there's gonna be a festive atmosphere in heaven and not fear. Now we believe that God is in heaven right now, of course, And when people die, they go up to be with God in heaven. But as I talked about last week, one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And that we're going to be on this new earth. And all of that is described in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. 
So let's read part of what that's going to be like. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, there that is again, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. So this beautiful city coming down. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Now, one of the most wonderful aspects of this description is this idea that we're gonna be in the presence of our Creator forever and ever. A loving relationship for reasons I'll never understand, I don't think. God has chosen to adopt those He created into His His family, calling us sons and daughters. But this beautiful place is coming, coming down from heaven and you learn that the, the whole new heaven and earth, all kinds of things are gonna change. No more pain, won't that be wonderful? No more crying, you know, no more suffering. I don't think we'll ever get tired in heaven. Revelation 22 continues to describe some of this. John, in writing about this, talks about this beautiful river that's coming out from the throne of God and the throne of Christ. And it's like crystal, it's just beautiful. A shiny river, and then it, it, he talks about this the tree of life that'll be along the river, and it'll bear 12 times, types of fruit, and every month it'll be a different fruit, which suggests, by the way, we'll be able to eat in this new earth, and, and I'm confident we will. Night won't exist anymore in this place because God himself is light, and we will reign with Christ one day. Now, another interesting aspect of of this situation is mentioned by Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 65, 17. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. That's kind of interesting. I don't think he's saying that we're going to forget everything. I think we'll remember everything, but... The glory of this new place is going to be such that we will have no desire whatsoever to go visit all that. I won't care about when I got my appendix out. I won't, my mind won't go there in the glory and the joy of this new thing. It won't even come to mind anymore because of the glory of this new thing. It's like in the Bible, like a, a woman giving birth to a child. You got all this pain. But then when the child is born, you kind of forget the pain. I mean, you, you do and you don't. I mean, you remember that was painful. But the horror of that pain kind of goes in the background because of the joy of this child. And that's what I think it's going to be. I think we're going to forget the pain. We're going to cling on to the joy. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful place. Third question, will we recognize people in heaven? Nowhere in the Bible do we read explicitly, yes, you'll be able to recognize everybody, but there's evidence to the fact that is indeed the case. One example is in Matthew 17, verses 3 and 4. Jesus took three of his closest friends up on this mountain and he just wanted to be alone with them and suddenly he was transfigured. This is called the transfiguration. He was changed. And suddenly he, he, he began to like glow like the sun and, and his, his, even his clothing was like solid light. And then all of a sudden, two visitors showed up. 
Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. We pick up the story in Matthew 17, 3. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three tabernacles. A tabernacle was just a temporary dwelling, mostly with, with tree branches and things. I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It raises the question, how did he know those were Moses and Elijah? You know, Elijah had been taken up to heaven 700 plus years earlier, Moses long before that, maybe a thousand years even before that. And yet, and no pictures of them. They couldn't look in an encyclopedia. No, he knew instantly who they were. I believe we will know and be known in heaven. And so we'll know people and we'll know our loved ones and we'll recognize them. And Paul had this perspective, I believe, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20 when he described the joy that he was going to experience in the future when Jesus came back in the clouds and the believers in the church of Thessalonica would go to join Jesus in the air and he said, that's going to be my joy when I'm up there with you and them in the presence of Jesus. And so in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, he, he said, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You know, when Jesus comes back, where's my joy going to be? Where am I going to have this kind of a holy pride? What, what is it going to excite me on that day? It's you. For you are our glory and joy. And I, I think he was anticipating this day when he was going to meet Christ in there and he's going to see his loved ones and his friends. And I think that's exactly what it's going to be like. By the way, this is anecdotal, but a lot of the stories that people have told about, these are stories from people that presumably died and then came back again. They described that when they did arrive at their destination before they had to return to their body, they were met by loved ones, maybe a husband, maybe a wife, maybe a grandfather, different ones who had passed before them. And that seems consistent with something God might do. We don't know for sure. But God might say, I'm going to send a welcoming party for you. you we will know people. I don't think we forget things. Fourth question, do babies and those unable to understand the gospel message go to heaven when they die? I'm convinced the answer is yes. I base it on a couple things. First of all, I think it's just the character of God. The character of God is that he's, he's love. I think he's just. You know, we would all recognize kind of an injustice there if a, a baby that died, you know, in childbirth they didn't have a chance to respond to anything, didn't even have a chance to commit any sins, would not go to heaven because died as an infant. I, I just think that's inconsistent with the character of God. Some people think that's not true because they acknowledge that everybody, all of us, are born with a sin nature. And so all of us, you know, all of us were born of Adam's corrupted spiritual seed, and so they think that's you know, they don't get an automatic ticket to heaven. I disagree completely with that. I think the death of Christ paid for those kinds of situations. The debt was indeed paid, though he's a descendant of Adam. But there are other reasons why I think this might be the case. Of course, both in Christianity and Judaism and in other faiths, they have this thing called this age of accountability. In the Old Testament, it seems that that age was about 12. Remember how Jesus was 12 when he went to the temple. Then he stayed behind and the parents took off and then they realized he's not with us. At that age, either 12 or 13, it's 13 now, a child becomes what's called a son of the law or bar mitzvah. 
You become this child of the law. At that point, you were accountable to the Old Testament law. You, you, had, you had to follow the laws now. Up to that point, you were given a kind of a free ride. And a lot of, a lot of theologians believe, well, there's this, this age of accountability where you're, you're not held accountable for these things. But there's some other evidence. It's more implied than anything. One is the example of King David and Bathsheba. You remember that King David had an affair with this woman named Bathsheba, someone else's wife. And then she conceived. And David then went and had the husband killed. So David was an adulterer and a murderer. And then he took her for himself. As part of what David was going to face because of this sin, God said the child is going to die. And before the child died, once the child got sick, David began to fast about it and prayed. He wouldn't have eaten. He wouldn't have combed his hair or anything. He probably sat in ashes, would have worn sackcloth. He was humbling himself before God and in deep sorrow. And everyone basically would have said, leave David alone. He's having trouble with this thing. And then the baby died. And nobody wanted to tell David because they thought if he's doing this before the death, what's he going to do now? No one wanted to tell him the news, but David surmised that the baby must have died, and so he just came right out and asked it, did the baby die? And they said yes. And then he did something odd. He got up, he took a bath, he changed his clothes, sat down, ate a meal. They were baffled by it. We don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. His answer to them is found in 2 Samuel 12, 22 and 23. He answered, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will never return to me. This was David's understanding. I'm going to one day see this child again. I'm going to go to this child one day. He can't come back, but I'm going to go to him. And I believe he was exactly right, and I think this reflects the theology of the people of their day. But I think it's also correct. We move to the New Testament, and there are inferences, inferences of words Jesus said that imply something like this. For example, in Matthew 18:3, where Jesus said, I assure you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He said things like this a lot. You've got to become like a child implying that the children have what it takes is what the implication is. And so I'm convinced this is indeed going to be the case, that we'll see those loved ones who were unable to respond. Number five, fifth question, will we be married in heaven? This is uh, an answer, one of the ones that might cause some to be disturbed a little bit. I'll just tell you ahead of time, because the answer to this one is kind of clear, and the answer is no. I think we'll know the person, we'll love the person, we'll remember the person. I think we'll love them more than we did even in this life, but we will not have this eternal legal bond with that person that was true on this earth. I think the bond is broken at death. And so some of you, maybe you're celebrating because you thought, oh, I didn't want to. <laughs> you know, you think if I'm stuck with this person forever or you're, you've been wondering the question, you know, what if I've had three husbands or wives or whatever, you know, what do you do with that? But Jesus was clear on this one. And again, this is where we, we go back to, well, what did Jesus say about it? The story is found in, in Matthew twenty two twenty eight 28 to 30. The Sadducees 
a group of religious leaders came to test Jesus with a question that they thought they would get him with. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They thought when you died, that was it. So they pulled an Old Testament law called the law of Leverite marriage. And this was in the Old Testament law. I'm glad it's not true today, but it was true in the Old Testament that if a woman was married to a guy and the man died before they had any children, the brother of the deceased was supposed to marry her, have a child with her, and then the the baby born would carry on the dead man's name and legacy. It would keep the property in in the family. So he was responsible to come along and help support that woman who'd lost her husband. It's called the law of Leverite marriage. It doesn't apply today. But you can imagine, you know, if, if somebody now were married and then the husband died, that the brother would have to come in. Well, the Sadducees came up with a ridiculous illustration. They said, there was this woman who got married and her husband died, so the brother stepped in and performed his duty in Leverite marriage. But then he died before she conceived, and another brother came in. And, and when all was said and done, this lady had had seven husbands. And so here was the challenging question for Jesus. So who's she married to? We pick up the story in verse 28 of Matthew 22. They say, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they all married her. Jesus answered them, you're deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, when it says they're like angels in heaven, it doesn't mean in every regard. That's my next question. Do we become angels? No, it's saying in, in, this, in regard to this subject of marriage, don't you realize that you know, angels in heaven, they don't, they don't have husbands and wives. There's no marriage in heaven at all. And Jesus was saying that's going to be the case. Now, again, I think we'll know our spouse, we'll love our spouse, might even have a special relationship with our spouse, but it will not be this marriage relationship that we had. And again, for some, I think that's disturbing because you think, well, I love this person. I want to spend an eternity with this person. I think the reason this is the case is because we're called in the New Testament the bride of Christ. That I think when we get to eternity, there'll be one that we're going to devote our love to, complete love, And it's to Christ and to our Heavenly Father, not to some earthly connection that we had. Sixth question, do people become angels when they die? I've hinted at this one, but the answer to that question is no. This one, again, is one that is clearer from the pages of Scripture that angels and people are of two different creative orders. This is clearly spelled out in a few places. The people are not angels. Angels are not people. We're different in that way. This goes all the way back to the creative story where angels had already been created and then God was getting ready to create Adam. And we read in Genesis 1, 6, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So we were, we've been given the stewardship of this entire planet as people created in the image of God. Now, in the present, angels are greater than we are in power and and in other ways, probably authority. They're greater than we are. But that's going to change one day. 
when we get our glorified bodies, these are weak bodies right now. It's like we can't compete. But one day we're gonna get our glorified bodies and, and things are gonna change. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, don't you know we will judge angels? One day we're gonna sit in judgment of them. And so throughout the pages of the Bible, there are distinctions between the, the angels and people. And so sometimes people say when someone dies, well, so-and-so got their wings. If they mean by that that they went to heaven, it's fine, you know. And it's just the, kind of the picture of that, but people don't end up getting wings. And they don't become our guardian angels. When we suffer, we want to be turning to our heavenly Father to get, provide the comfort. He's the one that's called the God of all comfort. He's the one that we pray to and the one who's willing to help us out. Number seven, will we be bored in heaven? A lot of people think so. I even had one of my kids ask me that once. This, this child said, you know, it just sounds so boring for all eternity. Well-known author John Eldridge put it this way, nearly every Christian I've ever spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. After all, the Bible says that the saints worship God in heaven, and without giving it much more thought, we've settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen, and our heart sinks. Forever and ever, that's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and we feel guilty that we're not more spiritual. It's like, I, I know I should, I think I, I should love this idea of worshiping God forever and ever, but it just sounds so boring. That's not what's going to happen in heaven. It's not. Now, we're not told much about what will happen, but there are, again, some hints. First of all, I pull a lot of hints from the book of Revelation describing the new heaven and the new earth, and I realize, well, in a sense, the new earth is going to be like the old earth. It's going to be like paradise before sin ruined everything. Only I think it's going to be better. This new earth is going to be new and improved. It's going to be wonderful. But if you go back to the Garden of Eden, paradise, you discover that God, before sin came into the world, God created Adam and gave him work to do. He said, I want you to, to tend to the garden. Adam's the one and Eve, they named the animals. But work, here's the thing to keep in mind. You say, well, I don't want to work forever either. I'm just now looking for retirement. <laughs> work is not work in heaven. The, the only reason work is work is because of the curse of sin that came upon it. God said, now when you go to till the ground, it won't produce like it did before. Thorns, thistles, rocks. Life's going to get tough by the sweat of your brow, God said. You know, you're going to be able to eat now. Through the sweat of your brow, it was going to be hard, but work was never intended to be hard because we were created for meaningful activity. So I'm convinced we're going to be involved with meaningful activity for all eternity, whatever God has for us. Part of what this means is reigning with Christ, especially if we've suffered for Christ. There are a lot of verses about this, but Jesus told some parables about this, about reigning with Christ. In Revelation 5, we read about this. We have a scene in heaven where God was holding a scroll, but no one was qualified to open the scroll. And then Jesus showed up, and he was the one that could open the scroll and reveal what was going to happen. Re Revelation 5, 9, you are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slaughtered. It's talking about Jesus. And you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and, saint and nation. By the way, this is another reason I think babies go to heaven. 
because it says over and over again, there will be people from literally every tribe, nation, and one of the words used there is dialect. There'll even be people there from Boston. You know, you get to a dialect, it's just a little bit of a twist from every, every one of them. You redeem people by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Now Jesus told parables about this. He said a landowner went to his servants and gave them each 10 talents and said, invest it while I'm gone. Of course, Jesus is the landowner and he took off. Landowner came back. To the one who was faithful, the one who used the 10 well in Luke 19, 17, the landowner said, and Jesus says, because you've been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over 10 towns. I think that's literal. I personally believe that we're going to serve with Christ in the millennial kingdom. While we're glorified bodies, in some ways we'll have the role that angels have now in our lives, I think we'll be serving Christ in the millennial kingdom. But that service, it, really, it will really matter what you did in this life. Because being faithful with what he's given you now is the thing that determines what's happening in the next life. Now in addition to all these things, um, I think that we're going to have the freedom to explore the universe. And we will be worshiping God. A lot, but I think it's going to be wonderful. Think of the, the most blessed worship experience you've ever had in your life. You know, some of you, years ago, they used to have these promise keepers things where all these men filled these stadiums and worship there was euphoric almost like, I feel like I'm in heaven right now. I think our worship will be, we'll love it. We will love it. It's not a never-ending sing-along whenever that's happening, but we got other stuff we're going to be doing. Eighth question, will pets be in heaven? I think all dogs go to heaven, but not cats. Okay, maybe not. The Bible doesn't address it. I mean, animals are not the same as people in terms of their eternal soul. But it's, it's possible, you know, that God in his love for us would say, I'm gonna bless you in this way, that I might see my Toby again. You know, God can do that, and we don't know one way or the other. The Bible is completely silent about it. We do know again, though, there are animals in the millennial kingdom you know, there's a scene described in the Old Testament where the lion is with the lamb, where children can play with a cobra and not get bitten. Won't that be fun? There'll be animals. It's like the Garden of Eden without sin. It's going to be wonderful. There'll be animals there. Whether our unique pet, we, don't, we have no evidence to that, but God in his kindness might say, you know, this is something this person loves so much, I'm going to bless them in that way. And I wouldn't be surprised at all by that. Nine, what will our new bodies be like? Paul illustrated this in 1 Corinthians 15 and he likened it to the difference that takes place between a caterpillar and a butterfly, which is remarkable to me when I think of it. I see a caterpillar, you know, and it goes in a little cocoon. What is that thing called, that little thingy? And then it comes out and it's got wings. It's remarkable. It's like, I don't, I don't get it. Well, God's gonna use somehow the seed of the old to produce the new. I don't know how that's gonna work. But Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, someone will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Here's part of his answer. It's sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. And I was so weak, but now it's gonna be glorious. It was so, well, then he says, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. 
For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. The simple answer is we're going to become immortal so that we can't die and our body's going to be like that of Jesus. That's what we know. And you get a glimpse of that when Jesus would appear in a room with his disciples. I think we're going to have that ability to just show up. And yet, it was, a, it was a physical body in some sense. Remember how Jesus said to Thomas, put your hand where, where my nail prints were. Feel it, I'm flesh and blood. And then he ate. And so it's gonna be a body, it's gonna be a glorified body, it's gonna be a wonderful body, but there's something about it that's also spiritual as well. And so I think it's gonna have the capacity to do both. A physical but also a spiritual body. I think, frankly, we're gonna have all the good of this body and none of the bad. Final question I'd like to raise here today is how can we make sure we end up in heaven? And you have to come back next week for that. Uh, of course, the simple answer is Jesus, but there is a, there's a reason why that that's the case. So again, my takeaway today is look to heaven to learn about heaven. What I want to encourage you to do, though, here is the next life is a continuation of this one, and a lot of the things that we do in this life will continue on in the next. And we should live in a way that reflects that reality. And so we worship in this life. And we're going to worship in the next. It's just a continuation. We serve our God in this life. I think we'll serve in the next. One day we're going to be completely holy and sinless. But we aim for holiness in this life as well. Love is something that endures forever. We read in 1 Corinthians 13. We love in this life now but we haven't seen anything yet. And I just want to encourage us more and more to be living in light of the reality that these things are true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much that you've you've cared so much about us that you want us to be with you forever. I marvel at that, that we were created out of the dust of this earth. And yet, oh Lord, you want us to, you've adopted us into your family. And that you've got wonderful things for us. We can't even conceive what you have for us. All the wonderful things. But we know you have wonderful things for us to do. And we're grateful for that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening. And we will see you next time.